Good afternoon and welcome to Midday Magazine for February 24th. Petersburg's Medical Center's long care, uh, long-term care, long care unit is in the thick of its largest COVID-19 outbreak yet. That's according to Helen Boggs, the center's long-term care manager. She reported on the upsurge of cases in at last evening's PMC board meeting. We have eight positive residents currently and a few staff members. So we are working through that. PMC's long-term care unit helps meet the needs of elderly residents who cannot care for themselves for long periods of time. According to the Center for Disease Control, people over the age of 60 have an increased risk of becoming severely ill from COVID-19. But Boggs says the long-term care residents are faring well. She says medications like Paxlovid and Remdesivir helped protect them from the worst symptoms. Luckily, we have, um, you know, our residents are not super sick and they're doing fairly well. At this point, we're doing okay, but we're going through a lot of PPE and wearing N95 masks and long-term care. But the outbreak in the long-term care unit isn't an isolated event. Phil Hofstetter is the CEO of Petersburg Medical Center. He says hospital staff are witnessing a spike in cases across the borough. COVID is making rounds again. It's rearing its head, certainly. Dealing with it in the facility, it's uh, in schools and in the community as well. So. According to the latest update from the Alaska Department of Health, COVID is still being transmitted across the state. There isn't a clear statewide trend, but the report says cases spiked in larger boroughs in the second week of February. However, most Alaskan communities, including the Petersburg borough, remain at the low community level as defined by the CDC. Among the first bills to reach the floor of the the Alaska House of Representatives this spring will be a resolution sponsored by Rebecca Hemshute, a first-term legislator from Sitka. House Joint Resolution 5, in support of the Southeast seafood industry, the troll fleet in particular, had a speedy passage through its its first committee hearing on February 14th. But Hemshute says that final passage of the resolution is no slam dunk. She says that she has her work cut out for her, bringing the 40-member Alaska House of Representatives up to speed on the issue. When I'm working with the other 39 members of the body, the first step is to make sure they understand the difference between trawl and troll, which I didn't realize would be a barrier, and it is. Uh, so, you know, depending on which member I'm talking to, they either know the issue well or they need to learn about the issue. It's the Southeast Alaska salmon troll fishery that's under threat from an environmental lawsuit in U.S. District Court in Washington State. Educating her colleagues about this critical difference is something that Himshoot, a lifelong teacher, has already shown an aptitude for. Representative Himshoot was recently in Sitka and spoke with Sitka's Robert Woolsey from KCAW about other ways her background has helped prepare her for the Capitol, especially the first couple weeks when the legislature organizes its majority and minority caucuses. Was there anything about being on the Sitka Assembly that helped you navigate Juno or helped you work the halls in Juno? Was there anything about your Assembly experience that is helping you now? 
100%. Juno is a whole different game. We use Robert's rules on the assembly. They use Mason's manual. It doesn't seem like it would be a big shift, but it is. So just like logistically how you do things is different. But the assembly experience really helped me wrap my brain around what is the job of government to provide? What are we there to do? And I'm still having to make some adjustments in my mindset locally where you are supporting either public works, public safety, or public education. It's a little more straightforward in some ways, but also more complex because it doesn't matter. Uh, my friends and neighbors' politics don't matter. I hold them in equal esteem no matter, you know, no matter which side of an issue we're coming at a topic on. Like, it doesn't matter what people think in town politically. I value each Sitkin so um, deeply that it made decision-making more difficult in some ways, trying to weigh what are the best interests of the community versus the people who are giving me input and, and my respect for them and my respect for their input. And so it makes decision-making more personal at the assembly level. But it also was a great experience in sort of looking at what is the problem we're trying to solve and what are the levers we can use to solve that problem. And in Juno, everything is just 10 times more complex. I, I think I have a little bit of a leg up because I'm used to examining issues, getting the background, doing the research, and figuring out what the, what the right path is. It's just a much bigger stage. At any point, did you feel like going in as unaffiliated was a handicap? I think the handicap of unaffiliated is for the voters in my district because they don't know exactly what they're getting. And it made it harder to campaign in some ways because people can't say, well, you're a Republican, I will or won't vote for you, or you're a Democrat, so I will or won't vote for you. So I had to explain my ideas and, and my positions on things. And so I think it made it harder for voters to know what they were voting for. Um, and harder for me to make sure I got my message out. And then um, as far as where I've landed in this round, everybody who ran unaffiliated is in my caucus. I don't think it made organization more challenging. I, I thought it would, um, but it didn't really. And I can say that I was never asked to, so to speak, stray from my principles. So that was good that no requests like that came in. And then ultimately some deals were made by some other people and I landed in what we're calling the, the House Coalition, same as what Jonathan was in, but we are in the minority as the House Coalition. But I feel really confident that we're a very strong minority in that we're very unified. We know what our agenda is. We're very confident in what we're doing and we have a good-sized group and a very representative group. I feel like our group really encompasses Alaska from span of age ranges to um, life experience. We have young people, old people, people who are way to my left, some to my right, all in our in our little coalition that we have in the minority. So I think I landed in the right place for me and uh, gives me a longer runway for when we get back to the majority in a couple of years. When organization is happening, it's not like you don't fill out a survey with your principles. It just has to somehow become clear. And the deal-making that was done was in the news mm -hmm. and um i wonder if it, it sounds like what you're saying you would prefer to be in a minority with people who share values and who you feel you can work with than trade some principles for a stronger voice in the majority or a committee chair or whatever 
I would say that's accurate for this year. Um, I can't say that that will always be the rule I live by. I think it's a good choice for me this year as I get my feet wet, as I learn the system, as I learn the people in the system, which is, I'd say, at least half the battle is knowing who you're working with and what their priorities are. So I can't say that I won't make some deals later when the time is right, but I will say I am comfortable with the people I'm working with, and that, like I said, is more than half the battle. That was Re- Representative Rebecca Hemshoot speaking with KCOS Robert Woolsey. Alana Johnson fell in love with the fungi of Juno's rainforest nearly a decade ago. That led her to start her own small small local mushroom farm. And as a recipient of Spruce Roots, Roots Path to Prosperity Prize, she hopes to put local fungi on even more plates. Anna Canny reports from Juno. It's a snowy day at the Brotherhood Bridge Trail in Juneau, but Alana Johnson is thinking about summer. This whole entire area would just be like covered with moss. Um, and it kind of reminds me of like a fairy, little fairy land. Um, she points to a stand of trees across the trail. And every, the forest is just completely lush green. Um, sometimes it's so thick, you would not even be able to see from like here to there. Because As her boots crunch along, she stays vigilant. She knows what she's looking for. Under uh, a branch or something, or like the space in the bottom of a, a tree, um, there's usually mushrooms in there. <laughs> and so it's- In the February cold, there are only conks, a woody, bitter shelf mushroom. But Johnson says the forest is abundant with edible mushrooms during the rest of the year. She's been bringing locals and tourists out here for nearly a decade with wicker baskets and a stack of field guides. She calls these outings mushroom forays. Her small business, New Earth Fungi, is a combination farm and education outlet where Johnson hopes to demystify fungi as food. Mushrooms have always been a hobby for Johnson, but when the pandemic hit, she decided to make them her livelihood. She was serving as a Peace Corps member in the Caribbean when all volunteers were evacuated. I was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I felt depressed (laughs) about the whole situation. And then I was like, you know what? Like, maybe this is the time to, like, start my mushroom business. She had been an amateur mushroom cultivator for years. So the business started with a few batches of homegrown oyster mushrooms, a popular variety known for its mild, savory flavor. Because they're pretty easy for me to grow, um, and a lot of people are familiar with them. They they love oyster mushrooms. But soon, she wanted to move beyond common varieties to bring new flavors and textures to local palates. So it's like, okay, what do people want to eat? And then what can I provide that people have not eaten before? Like maybe lion's mane. And they see it in the grocery store. They're like, what is that weird thing? And it's like got little like tentacles. But then I tell them how, the, how to cook it and... Now it's become more popular, and I tell them what the medicinal benefits are, and they're just in love with it. And it tastes, I mean, it's it's one of my favorite mushrooms, honestly. Now she cultivates eight different kinds of mushrooms. They grow out of large plastic bags that line the white metal shelves of her fruiting room, which she operates out of her home. A combination of education and cultivation form the foundation of Johnson's business plan. She refined and pitched that plan at the Path to Prosperity Business Boot Camp last fall. It's an annual business development competition hosted by Spruce Root, a nonprofit focused on community development. This year, the prize was a $25,000 grant for two recipients. Johnson was one of them. 
When I got off the phone with her, I just like broke down. I like called my parents and I just started crying because I feel like I've put so much work, like time and energy into like all of this. And sometimes it can feel like there's definitely days where I'm like, why am I doing this? Johnson says local demand for her mushrooms has been high since she launched the business in 2020. They're sold in a handful of grocery stores and restaurants across Juneau, but she's been struggling to keep up. Cultivating mushrooms on a large scale is hard. It demands space, time, and a sterile environment. Johnson says the prize money will be a relief. She'll use it to invest in mushroom sterilizing equipment and maybe a larger commercial space. She also hopes to hire help, which will free up time for the things she loves most, mushroom forays. It's just such a relaxing but, like, healing thing to just be, like, connected and just know, like, what things are around you and to have a greater appreciation and respect for for food. And she believes that connection with local food goes hand in hand with a connection to the land itself. I feel so connected to this place through mushrooms, too. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. (laughs) Johnson will resume her mushroom forays in the summer. In the meantime, she's excited to provide the foundation for Juno's mushroom-based meals. In Juno, I'm Anna Canny. The Alaska Department of Public Safety is asking state legislature le- legislators for $7.5 million to buy a new patrol boat. That's after an inspection last fall found its current boat unsafe to, offer, to operate. The Alaska Beacon reports that the request was included in Governor Mike Dunleavy's amended budget proposal released last week. It's now under consideration in the Capitol. According to a department spokesperson, the patrol boat Enforcer had significant pitting and corrosion in the steel and a large mold infestation in the cabin. The vessel is based in Juneau. It was decommissioned in January after a November inspection turned up a wide range of problems, including aging equipment, wasted steel, and leaking hatches. The Department of Public Safety operates 88 boats of all sizes, and the Enforcer is the department's second largest, behind the Stimson, which patrols commercial fisheries out of Kodiak. The Enforcer could be repaired, the department said, at an estimated cost of $3 million. It would take two years, and those repairs would extend the boat's life for only 10 years. A new large patrol boat could operate for 30 years, the department estimates, operate in more extreme weather conditions, and be more effective overall. The department's proposal is included in the amended capital budget, now under review by budget subcommittees in the House and Senate. And the American Civil Liberties Union of Alaska sued the State Department of Corrections yesterday over a rights issue affecting certain people in state custody. This specific legal matter is a bit down in the weeds, but has big impacts on how prepared someone is for life outside of prison. Alaska Public Media's Jeremy Shea reports. When someone serves time in Alaska's prisons, they'll hit certain milestones as they approach their release date. And they'll become eligible for things like work release, electronic monitoring, and rehab programs. Parole boards often grant earlier release dates, 
but the ACLU says the Department of Corrections won't recognize those new dates for eligibility purposes for these programs. They are crucial to helping people be able to readjust our communities and to be successful once they're released. That's ACLU Legal Director Ruth Botstein speaking at a news conference on Thursday. The ACLU is representing four men caught up in the technicality. Jace Frankson, Jeffrey Mathis, Jonathan Walker, and Sababu Hadari. They've each served more than 20 years of their decades-long sentences and were each granted parole, moving their release dates up. But the Corrections Department has told them that, based on their original release dates, they are ineligible for the transition programs. ACLU prison investigator Jacqueline Shepard recounted a conversation she had with one of the men. I've been behind bars my entire adult life. I have no idea how to open a bank account. I don't know how to use a computer. And I've never really had an apartment or adult responsibility. I can't qualify for any community-based programs that would help me transition slowly into society. I feel like they're purposefully setting me up to fail. Of the named plaintiffs, Frankson has the earliest release date set for August 9, 2024. Botstein called the department's interpretation of the eligibility rules irrational and arbitrary. The organization is asking the court to assert that the Department of Corrections is violating due process and equal protection rights and to order the department to give the plaintiffs and others like them access to transition programs. A spokesperson for the department said in an email late Thursday morning that she was not yet aware of the lawsuit. She forwarded a request for comment to the State Department of Law, which has not yet responded, though the state generally does not comment on current litigation. The ACLU says the state has 40 days to respond in court. In Anchorage, I'm Jeremy Shea. You're listening to KFSK. My name is Shelby Herbert. 